Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. It can be found on page 873 in your pew Bibles. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at a table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Father, we've come now to the time in our service when we gather under the word of Christ. I pray that you give us grace to sit under Christ's word with humility, that you'd give us understanding, that you would attend my preaching with your Holy Spirit's power. I'm not able to affect souls the way we're desperate to see souls affected. Even the souls of us who have believed, we need your Holy Spirit. Would you attend the preaching of your word by your spirit with power? Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, faith to believe him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Do you know about an old man, or a man rather, in the Old Testament named Mephibosheth? There are at least a couple of ladies in our church expecting babies, one of whom we know is having a boy. Mephibosheth is a great name. It's cool in that by the time he can drive, he'll have learned to spell it. That has it going for it. (laughs) Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Israel's first king, Saul. So that makes Mephibosheth, if you're keeping up, Saul's grandson. When Mephibosheth was just five years old, 2 Samuel 4 tells us, news came of King Saul and his son Jonathan's deaths amid Israel's battles with the Philistines. And as Mephibosheth's nurse fled with the little boy for safety, the Bible says that he fell and he became crippled in his feet. He became lame. By the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, Mephibosheth has grown up, and King David asks if there are any of Saul's family remaining to whom David can show kindness for the sake of Saul's son Jonathan, with whom David had a very deep friendship. And a servant tells David, yes, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. He's talking about Mephibosheth. And when Mephibosheth finally arrives to King David, the king says to this grandson of of Saul, Saul, who was always looking to kill David, David says to Mephibosheth, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And indeed, 2 Samuel chapter 9 ends with this. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. A crippled man who could offer nothing to the king. A crippled man who, by being in the family of the king's enemy, ought to have himself been considered an enemy of the king. But instead, the king says to him, you shall eat at my table always. Now, what does Mephibosheth have to do with Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24? And what does Mephibosheth have to do with you? Turns out a lot. Because we have in our text today another king's table that's yet to be filled. Who is this king? Who is it that sits at his table? And how is it that you would come to eat with him at his table always? And how do you know if you'll be found at his table? Our text is going to answer those questions for us. But before we jump back into Luke's gospel, it's been more than a month since we were in Luke on a Sunday morning. So let me spend just a couple of minutes reorienting reorienting you to where we are in this book. We're in the section of Luke in which Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, traveling to his death on the cross, his resurrection. This section of Luke's gospel begins where we resumed our sermon series in Luke last fall, in chapter 9 and verse 51, where we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And ever since then, he's been going to Jerusalem, where he's finally going to arrive in chapter 19. The section we're in in Luke's gospel has very few miracles, though we are going to have one in our text today. It's mostly Jesus' teaching and warning and rebuking. 
And the gist of all that Jesus is saying in this section of Luke's gospel is that the Jews who were supposedly anticipating and looking for the kingdom turn out to be outside the kingdom, while those that the Jews thought would never be found in the kingdom, namely the lowly Gentiles, are in. The Jews are out of the kingdom of God because of their prideful, wicked rejection and opposition to the king of the kingdom, while the Gentiles, the lowly, outcast Gentiles, are in because of their faith in Jesus. So as we get back into Luke, that's what's been going on. Jesus has been warning the Jews of judgment for their unbelief toward him, and he's been teaching that his kingdom is populated by the lowly, and we see those ideas in our text this morning. So as chapter 14 begins, Luke records Jesus' visit to a Pharisee's house. Verse 1 says it's a ruler of the Pharisees, in fact, and he's there for a meal on a particular Sabbath. That's the Jewish day of worship, our Saturday. And right away, Luke lets us know the setting is tense. Jesus is in the house, and verse 1 says, they were watching him carefully. They were watching him carefully. Which is the continuation of the resolution that the scribes and Pharisees made with each other after the Lord pronounced scathing woes upon them back in chapter 11. The last two verses in chapter 11 say, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Yes, that's what they're up to here in this ruler of the Pharisee's house. They're lying in wait like a viper hidden and still in the tall grass waiting to strike. They're watching Jesus carefully to catch him saying or doing something that they can use to put a stop to him. You can see that the Jews' hateful opposition of Jesus is getting hotter and hotter. Luke also tells us in verse 2 that at this house was a man who had dropsy. That's a term for somebody with fluid retention that's causing significant and painful swelling. Now, Without their saying a single word, Jesus knows that the Jewish religious leaders in the house are waiting to see if he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath. John 2 tells us that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows. We just had a confrontation like this back in chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, you might remember. When Jesus healed a woman who, as Luke put it, has uh, had a disabling spirit for 18 years, the Bible says that when Jesus healed her in the synagogue on the Sabbath, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And so Jesus in this house, knowing that they're seeing him, knowing that they see the man with dropsy, it's the Sabbath, these Jews know what's coming, they know Jesus is going to heal him, and they don't like it. And Jesus knows what's going on in the minds and hearts of the people in this house. And he asks them, verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? In fact, we know Jesus knows what they're thinking because Luke says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. They didn't say anything, but they might as well have. They're saying it internally. And Jesus responds to their thoughts and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
Strangely, for a bunch of lawyers, they have nothing to say. (laughs) They remain silent, verse 4 says. They certainly hadn't learned the lesson that Jesus taught in the synagogue in chapter 13 about why it's entirely in keeping with God's command to love your neighbor as yourself, to heal this man, even on the Sabbath. And so, verse 4 goes on to say Jesus heals the man, he sends him on his way. And then in verses 5 and 6, the Lord exposes these Jews' hypocrisy. He reminds them they have no qualms about rescuing a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath. And that's right. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 4 allows for such compassionate exertion even on the Sabbath. And Jesus' question to them in verse 5 reveals that they abide by such practice. If they had a son, some of your translations might say donkey instead of son because of some manuscript differences, but if they had a son or a donkey fall into a well on the Sabbath, they wouldn't wait until the next day. They'd get their son or their donkey out. But they balk when their fellow member of the covenant community suffering from a disease is pulled out of a well, as it were, is healed from a disease on the Sabbath. It's the very same kind of hatefulness that we've already seen from the Jews, again, back in chapter 13. There, Jesus tells those who are in the synagogue that they untie their ox or their donkey and they lead it to water, even on the Sabbath. But they get indignant when their fellow Hebrew, a daughter of Abraham, she's called, is untied from the debilitating handicap by which Satan had had her bound for 18 years. These Jews didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They loved their oxen and their children. But hang the woman bent over and hang the the man with dropsy as far as they were concerned. Let them come back tomorrow for their healing. And Jesus will have none of it. He exposes their hypocrisy right to their face. And having asked them the question in verse 5, What's their response in verse 6? It's the same as in verse 4, isn't it? It's total silence. They couldn't reply to these things. Jesus had them dead to rights. But I want you to notice that these Jews have learned nothing from the repeated warnings that they've received. In chapter 11, Jesus tells them that the blood of the prophets is going to be required of them because they will be party to the killing of the greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. In chapter 12, he warns them to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man who is in their midst and to interpret the signs that pertain to eternal life. In chapter 13, the Lord warns them unless they repent, they're going to perish like the Galileans whom Pilate killed, or they're going to perish like the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. Jesus warned them that the fruitless fig tree that is unbelieving Israel is going to be cut down in judgment. He warned them of not entering the kingdom by way of the narrow door who is himself. He warned them how one day they're going to stand outside and knock to enter the kingdom after the door has been closed, and they're going to hear, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. They've received warning after warning after warning after warning and nothing's changed. They have Jesus in their midst performing miracles 
the miracles that their scriptures, the Old Testament, tell them ought to be the sign that the Messiah has come. And instead of believing on him and worshiping him, what do they do? They watch him carefully. They scrutinize him. And they disapprove of his work. And they reject him. And they scheme to kill him. And so, to them Jesus gives two parables, which each in their own way teach that the spiritually humble will be eternally exalted. It's fitting that both parables have to do with feasts or banquets, since Jesus is telling these parables in the context of a meal. And the first parable found in verses 7 through 11 is a parable of a wedding feast. These verses don't sound like what you're accustomed to hearing a parable sound like because this isn't really a story from Jesus as much as it is a scenario that he constructs to teach about humility. But you'll notice in verse 7 that Luke calls it a parable. And so Jesus has been observing at this meal, verse 7 tells us, that people are choosing the places of honor. And so he tells them beginning in verse 8 that they shouldn't do that. Instead, he says that when they go to a wedding feast or any kind of formal meal, don't go to the place of honor. If you do that, you might find that a more distinguished guest has come. The host is going to come and ask you to give up your seat and move down to the lowest place. Boy, that's a shameful, humiliating thing to have happen. Instead, Jesus says, when you go to a wedding feast, you ought to willingly sit in the lowest place. Now, not with some kind of false theatrical humility. False humility isn't humility. But but willingly sit in the lowest place, Jesus says. And then the host might say, friend, no, you're supposed to be up here at the table of honor. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all of those around you, Jesus says. We get the upshot, the lesson of this parable in verse 11. Where Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself, in this case by pridefully presuming upon a seat at the place of honor, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see that in verse 11? That might be a verse for you to commit to memory. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a very common teaching in the scriptures. Psalm chapter 147 and verse 6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Proverbs 18.22 says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor or grace. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace To the humble, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This contrast between the humble and the self-exalting we find throughout the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector in chapter 18, the Lord says that the tax collector, the one seen by the Jews to be vile and irredeemable, 
Jesus says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What is Jesus' mother, Mary? A poor Judean Hebrew girl. What does she say in her song of praise in chapter 1 after she learns that the Messiah is going to be brought forth from her virgin womb. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In Isaiah chapter 57, The prophet says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The one whose name is holy, he dwells in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Now, what's Jesus talking about here when he talks about humility and self exaltation? He's talking about the humility that comes when a person recognizes that without the saving grace of the Lord operating in his life, he's totally bankrupt spiritually, totally unable to please God, bringing to God absolutely nothing that would ever commend him to God, relying 100%, relying completely and totally on God's mercy and steadfast love and grace for salvation. Jesus is talking about the humility that recognizes that what a person deserves for his sin from God is hell, and that Anything from God other than hell is all of grace. That's the humility Jesus is talking about. And these Jews didn't have it. They had pride. Pride, as we see from back in chapter 11, that gave them the wicked audacity to see with their own eyes the Messiah casting out demons healing a mute man and saying that Jesus was casting out demons with the power of Satan. These Jews believe that their pedigree, that their biological descendants from Father Abraham, they believe that they're being members of the old covenant community. They believe that they're striving to keep the law of Moses. They pridefully believe that all of that made them right with God. And they exalted themselves even as judges of God come in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who actually is going to judge all men at the last day. They believe themselves to rightly belong in a seat at the place of honor at God's table. That's what they believed about themselves. 
And Jesus says to them here, in essence, because of your pride, because of your unbelief, because of your rejection of me and your opposition to me at the judgment, I'm going to take you from the high place where you've put yourself, and I'm going to cast you into the lowest, shameful place, into the place of outer darkness, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the exaltation, the self-exaltation, that Jesus is warning about that ends with eternal humiliation in the lake of fire. And instead, those, like the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, like the younger son that we're going to see in the parable in Luke 15 in a couple of weeks, those who, in humility, recognize that because of their sinfulness, they have no place at the seat of honor. And they can only plead to the master for mercy. They're the ones who hear the master say, friend, move up higher. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the humility that ends with exaltation eternally in heaven. Now let me just say to you, dear one, that living with that kind of humility is not humiliating. Indeed, living with that kind of humility puts you in the company of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? Jesus humbled himself. The eternal, uncreated God clothed himself in creation. The Lord God Almighty became a baby. The one who had eternally occupied heaven's throne occupied a feeding trough. And then, the one who is the life, the one from whom all life comes, died. And he didn't die on a battlefield with a sword on a horse. He died on a Roman cross, a humiliating form of public execution for criminals. And the Holy One of Israel the one who possesses perfect righteousness, died having placed on him righteousness that was like filthy rags. The sinless lamb of God had placed on him the sins of the world. In his flesh, the one who had eternally enjoyed unbroken fellowship with the Father was forsaken by the Father as he suffered as the sin-bearing wrath-satisfying atonement for all the sins of all of his people. It's unquantifiable humility. 
And because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. Do you see it? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is calling on his hearers in this house and in this one to humble themselves, to see their sin, to see him as their savior, and thereby to be exalted as adopted sons of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And if they will not humble themselves, if they continue to exalt themselves, they will be eternally humbled at death and in the judgment. A similar lesson is taught by the second parable in verses 12 to 24. Jesus tells his host that when he gives a dinner or a banquet again, he shouldn't invite his friends or his brothers or his relatives or his rich neighbors. Instead, he ought to invite those who can't repay him with a reciprocal invitation. He ought to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Not only could these folks not repay, they know they're not even in a position to pretend like they could repay. Those kinds of folks in the day in which Jesus was ministering would be at a rich man's dinner or banquet, they know, only because of that man's mercy and grace and kindness. And when he invites to his banquet those who can't repay, Jesus says in verse 14, he'll be blessed. Not because justification comes by inviting people to your table who can't repay, but because justified people invite to their table people who can't repay. And actually, as it turns out, there isn't a lack of repayment, is there? Those who love and serve their brothers and sisters in the way Jesus is commanding his host to love and to serve will be paid immeasurably at the resurrection of the just at Christ's return. We see that in verse 14. God's going to repay, and he'll repay abundantly, and he'll repay eternally. Now, at the mention of the resurrection of the just, which the Pharisees rightly understood would take place at the end of the age, somebody who's reclining at the same table as Jesus says to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses this occasion to give the guy some instruction on just who it is who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That's the clarity Jesus brings in the parable that he tells beginning at verse 16. It's our second parable. Once again, we have a meal in view, just like what's going on where Jesus is telling this story. And we see in the story that there's a master who wants to have a great banquet. And he's invited many folks to it. And when the banquet is all ready, when Joel Dyke has said that the last of the briskets is ready to come off the smoker... The master tells his servant to go and to round up all the people to whom the banquet invitations went out. Come, for everything is now ready, the servant says in verse 17. And no one comes. They all begin to make excuses. I just bought some land, I got to look it over. I just bought five yoke of oxen that I got to go inspect. I just got married, another says in verse 20, I can't come. So the servant goes back and tells his master, they aren't coming. Then Jesus says in verse 21 that the master who's throwing the banquet became angry 
And he said to his servant, go out quickly. Don't forget, the table's already set for this banquet. The banquet is ready now. Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Remember this quartet? We met them back in verse 13. And so the servant goes out and he does that. They apparently heed the invitation, but there still remains room at the master's banquet. So he tells the servant to go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. In this second parable, and indeed Jesus' time at this ruler of the Pharisee's house, ends with this statement by the master in the parable in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. What a word to Jesus' Jewish audience, if only they had had ears to hear it. The invitation to come to the master's banquet by repenting of their sins and believing on Christ had gone out. John the Baptist had been calling the Jews to repentance. Jesus had been calling him to repentance. Mark 1 says Jesus went about preaching, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the gospel. And indeed, this call to repent and to have faith in God's Redeemer, the Messiah, God's Son and King, that was being preached throughout the Old Testament to Israel. The master has been sending his servants, the prophets, out with invitations to Israel to come and to eat bread in the kingdom of God. But they were unbelieving and they were unwilling. And so, just as in this second parable, the ones least likely to feast at the master's banquet, the ones farthest away from the master's table, the ones that the first group of invitees could never have imagined would take the seats they were invited to occupy, they're the ones who come in. The Gentiles, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. What do those terms mean? Those who recognize that they are poor in spirit. Those who recognize that they've been crippled and made lame by sin. Those who recognize that they're blinded by sin. Who recognize that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're the ones who are poor and crippled and blind, and lame, the humble who will eternally taste the master's banquet. And that group, the poor and crippled and blind and lame, that's who the master came for, as he tells us in this very book. He says in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And these Jews would not acknowledge their sin and their spiritual poverty and their spiritual lameness and blindness. And so the invitation to the master's banquet was rejected. What Paul and Barnabas say in Acts 13 and Pisidian Antioch, several years after Jesus returns to heaven, 
Jesus is saying in this Jewish man's house on this Sabbath. Paul and Barnabas said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, many of whom will be given grace to see themselves as poor and crippled and blind and lame because of sin, will receive the master's invitation to his eternal banquet. Let me spend some time making use of this text for our lives. First, I want to plead with you who are unbelievers. If you are not a Christian, would you please give me your ear? I want to plead with you who are unbelievers to humble yourself now while there's still time. While the door to the kingdom is still open to you. While you still have one of the master's servants extending to you an invitation to come and to feast at the kingdom's banquet. If you have not yet come to Christ, it's because you have not yet begun to regard yourself as poor and crippled and blind and lame by your sin. To some degree, you still regard yourself as having no need of rescue. Maybe you think, okay, I'm not perfect. But you still think that the order of the day is that you just need a bit of help. I'm saying to you, my dear unbelieving friend, that you're not drowning and in need of someone to throw you a life preserver. I'm saying to you that spiritually speaking, you are on the very bottom of the deepest ocean, helpless and lifeless, and you don't need Christ to throw you a life preserver. You need him to come all the way to you and to take your dead bones and to breathe eternal life on them by his Holy Spirit. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and what you need is to be born again. And until you realize that, until you realize your spiritual condition is poor and crippled and lame and blind, you will not be saved. Because you'll never see your need to be saved, and so you'll never come to the Savior. Only God can give you eyes to see your spiritual condition. So ask him to do that. If you're not a Christian, do that right now as a prayer. Do it even now. Ask God to give you the grace to see yourself as you truly are and ask him to draw you to his son for salvation. Ask him to give you the grace to receive the invitation that's being offered to you in this very moment to come and to feast at the master's banquet. Ask him to give you the grace to humble yourself and then if he doesn't do that before this service is over, go home and keep asking him to save you. Ask your friends in this church to join you in asking him to save you. If you never humble yourself, if you never see your wretched spiritual condition, you will never be saved. And so ask God to give you grace to see yourself aright so that you may come to Christ for rescue and salvation. How about you, my Beloved brothers and sisters, how can we make use of this text? Well, first, I want to plead with you as I just pleaded to my unbelieving friends. Humble yourself. 
Please don't think that humility is required to come into the kingdom, but is no longer necessary after that. No. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received Christ with humility, recognizing that you're poor in spirit. Now, walk in him with humility, recognizing that he has to continue to intercede for you, and he must continue to hold you. William Carey is a hero of mine. He was a Baptist missionary to India in the early 1800s. Some have called him the founder of modern missions. And after all that he had accomplished for God's kingdom, this is what he wanted on his tombstone. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Now, there's a wrong way to look at ourselves, Christian, as though we have not been made new creation by the spirits regenerating us. It's no longer true of us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We have new hearts as partakers in the new covenant. It's no longer true of us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. No, by God's grace, we can perform truly righteous works by the power of the spirit that indwells us. But I appreciate Carrie's mindset. Humility. A right acknowledgement of our continued worminess, if you please. Apart from Christ, that's always the appropriate posture for the believer. And so, Christian, I ask you, have you stopped working with spirit-empowered work to humble yourself? How do you know? Well, this list could go on and on. One way you know is to see how you react when things don't go the way you think they should go. Do you get twisted up? When your idea doesn't win the day. When your counsel, even if it's wise counsel, goes unheeded. When you don't get the recognition and the thanks and the esteem and the honor that you're so sure you deserve, how do you react to that? If those things kind of get stuck in your craw, God's giving you the grace to see that you need to humble yourself by his grace and power. Were you aware of your need for God's help in overcoming besetting sin until you got a few victories under your belt? Did you used to pray more and more desperately? Did you used to be more aware of your dependence on God's grace and his his help and his power if you were going to live a life live a life pleasing to him but lately you you look and you've kind of been living like you think you can handle things on your own. You've got this sin thing pretty much licked. If so, God's giving you the grace to see that you need to humble yourself by his grace and power. Humility must always characterize you, dear Christian. Always, always ask God to help you. Second, don't prefer your brothers and sisters who can repay your hospitality. In fact, don't show preferential love at all among your brothers and sisters. Who can you make it a point to have a conversation with before or after church that 
isn't someone that you kind of naturally have an affinity with. Now, this application is always dangerous because if you talk to somebody after church that you don't usually talk to, they start kind of thinking stuff in the back of their minds. Who can you invite to your home for a meal and a visit that might not be able to reciprocate for any number of reasons? James 2 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's what James says. I think partiality and the lack of unity that's connected to partiality is bound up in the sin that caused some in the Corinthian church to be weak and ill and some even to have died. Doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. These Jews in our text, they showed partiality. And they preferred their well-heeled pals for their banquet invitations. But we, believers, get to show impartial love to our brothers and sisters as a reflection of our being fellow partakers with each other in the gospel of Christ, which has broken down every wall of separation between us. So who is it to whom you can extend kindness and hospitality with no expectation of repayment? To whom can you show impartial love in the church? Third, I'm struck by the master's command to his servant in verse 23. Look at it with me if your Bibles are still opened. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. I just issued to you a challenge sermon last week about how evangelism is the order of the day for CMC in 2023 as we seek to grow so as to plant locally again. What a great evangelism verse Luke 14.23 is. Because evangelism requires beating the bushes sometimes, doesn't it? Evangelism sometimes requires going out to the highways and hedges to find people, going and looking for people to evangelize, being proactive, being on purpose about heralding the gospel. And there's compelling that must be a part of your evangelism too, isn't there? Now, of course, I'm not talking about bullying or browbeating or trying to paint somebody into a corner or heavy-handed sales tactics. But the fact of the matter is that when you evangelize, believer, you know what the stakes are, and your friend doesn't. You know the stakes are eternal. You know what your friend's desperate need is for salvation. And so it's appropriate to engage in some compelling. There ought to be an earnestness and an urgency to your evangelism. Paul said to the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's right. Christian, we ought to be doing some imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Compel people, compel people to come in. 
Why? It's the motivation we saw last week. Look at verse 23 again. That my house, that the master's house may be filled. Christians, we go to the highways and hedges with the gospel, looking for those who are far from Christ, like these in the parable who would have been very far from the master's banquet table. And we compel them to repent and believe the gospel. Not primarily so that they'll have a banquet to enjoy, though they will, but rather so that the master's house may be filled. So that around his table will be those offering him praise and worship and glory and the honor he deserves for his fathomless grace and mercy to poor and crippled and blind and lame sinners like us. Christian, your name is Mephibosheth. Crippled by sin, you were compelled to come not to King David's table, but to the table of David's greater son, King Jesus, where we feast by faith now and where we'll feast eternally in his presence when our faith is sight. So let's respond to his mercy with humble gratitude and let's go out with the master's gospel invitation in hand, working to fill his house. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have humbled ourselves, it's because you gave us the grace to do it. And so we say thank you. Father, I pray that these friends of mine who are here, who are outside of Christ, would be given the grace that we who've believed have received to humble themselves, to come to Christ for salvation, and to sit around the master's table with humility and gratitude forever. Thank you. Thank you, O God, for going out and bringing people poor and crippled and lame and blind by sin to yourself. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.